0: Before we get going, just a quick reminder that you can download the High Performance app for free. Download the app, use your exclusive code HPAPP, that's HPAPP for access, where you can hear Damien talk exclusively about combating perfectionist thinking with the Shakespeare Principle. Hi there, you're listening to High Performance, the award-winning podcast that unlocks the minds of some of the most fascinating people on the planet. I'm Jake Humphrey, and alongside Professor Damien Hughes, we learn from the stories, successes and struggles of our guests, allowing us all to explore, be challenged and to grow. Here's what's coming up today. When I lay in that hospital bed and I looked around the ward at everyone fighting
1: for their lives and, and just trying to take that other breath... I was like, wow, I've chased this thing, this medal, or this sort of being to try and maybe go back to my village and everyone goes, wow, you're the gold medalist. And it it really didn't matter uh, because in a hospital room where everyone's fighting for their life, you realize that actually just waking up in the morning and and breathing is is one of the best gifts that will ever be given. I won't sit here and lie to you. There's days where I don't even leave my bed. I'm banging my head on a wall. I'm crying. I'm just like, oh, you know what? I've had enough suffering. Now, I'm I'm ready to shut my eyes and never open them again. I don't want to die. And um, and it's it's yeah, it's scary. And uh, to deal with it and know that it's going to happen again, there has to be a level of acceptance of mortality. Within it all, we come into this world on an inhale and we leave on an exhale. To Very, very powerful, defining breaths.
0: But every breath we take is defining. So as you can hear from that short clip, this is an emotional and incredibly moving conversation of high performance that we recorded recently at the Happy Place Festival in Tatton Park. So you're about to hear from a man called David Smith. Now, it's easy to talk about David as an athlete. He earned a black belt in karate and was in the British squad for six years took up sprinting, wanting to compete at the Olympics, turned to bobsled and actually missed out on the 2006 Winter Olympics spot by 100th of a second. He then moved into the world of rowing and won gold in 2012 at the London Games and subsequently joined the British Cycling Academy programme in 2014. So that's David Smith as an incredible elite athlete, a man who's superbly fit, a man who can take his body and his mind to places that most of us can't. But that doesn't even begin to describe who David Smith really is because David is a man who is fighting for his life and you're about to hear his incredible, moving, inspiring story and there is so much we can all learn from what you're about to hear. So let's do it then. This is David Smith joining us on the High Performance Podcast live at the Happy Place Festival.
3: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: The headlines will say that in 2012, in rowing, he won a gold medal at the London Games. The story, though, Is so much more than that. In fact, it was not too long ago that Sir Chris Hoy, one of our greatest ever Olympians, tweeted and he said, under resilience in the dictionary, there should be two words David Smith. And it's our absolute pleasure to welcome onto stage David Smith. How are you doing? Very
1: well. A little bit daunted. There's a, a huge crowd in front of me, but I think I lived here for six months and when I first moved here, it rained every day. So I, I think to, <laughs> to be here in the sun, uh, it, it's beautiful. And yeah, thank you very much for taking time out of your weekend to, to come and
0: listen. Um, let's start at the beginning, if you don't mind. You know, I, I started the introduction to you by talking about the gold medal in London in 2012, Um, but that is a minuscule part of your true story. Can we talk about where that desire to be an elite athlete first started? I would love to
1: say the typical story that I watched the Olympics and fell in love with sport and wanted to be an Olympic athlete. That's not entirely true. It was my parents, I was a a bit of a disruptive child growing up in Scotland, and I think my parents just to get me out of the house, and get me away from under their feet was to throw me into the local ski club, karate club, and a, a Scottish sport called Shinty, which I'm sure none of you have, have heard, maybe a few people. And I, I guess for me, I, I've, I fell in love with it. Uh, my dream was to go to the Air Force actually as a physical training instructor, but there was a few health battles along the way that sort of deterred that injury. And I've, I guess I've always had the mindset of one door closes if you have a sort of growth mindset and you're optimistic there is another door there you just have to have the courage to walk through it and I guess my journey into sport prepared me for something later in life that was ultimately going to test me more than any sporting field.
4: So tell us And you were a great bit of an athlete as, at karate and then you moved over to Rowan. Just explain a little bit about the transition there then Dave.
1: So I think what was great for me is my, my parents put me into team sports as a kid so I learned early on about the we not the I and I think that was super important because. Fast forward until I've left sport, and some athletes reflect on medals and what you've won. For me, I I look back and think the best thing I got out of sport was friendships and relationships that have lasted a lifetime. And I lean into some of those people now to deal with what I deal with now. But I I also believe that sport gave me the, the mindset and the physical body to deal with cancer and paralysis. But cancer and paralysis taught me how to live. So I think that sport was the perfect place to learn. All of the values of resistance, persistence, courage, and respect, and also how to get sleep right, nutrition right, and perform in a high performance environment. But ultimately, most athletes would say that prepared them for a world championships and Olympic Games. For
0: me, that really prepared me to sit in oncology and fight for my life. So who were you then in 2010? I've seen a brilliant photo of you. I mean, you look unbelievable. You're running on a track, you're ripped, you've got your top off, and I'm like the sort of six-pack I've been dreaming of. (laughs) I'm promising my wife for 20 years. But what you say under under the caption of the photo, you say that this is me at my physical peak. I had no idea that when this photo was taken, there was already something growing inside me. So who were you the day that photo was taken? If I'm being completely honest... I think I was a selfish athlete
1: that was very focused on himself, uh, with probably some narcissistic traits. Um, it was all about winning. It was all about David, and and I and I've been humbled massively. I think I've always been a nice person. My parents gave me good values to always be nice to people, but I was very focused, very driven. I'd say I was very attached to the physical being that I was. So I was, I, I guess, I had a lot of insecurities about how I looked. Uh, i was never in i thought i was not in great shape and i had to get in better shape so i had a lot of insecurities around my physical body and it's funny when i first went into hospital i was a 100 kilo rower and after three weeks i woke up at 65 kilos after suffering a stroke and having my first tumor removed and that was the first time I guess the, the, my ego died. I wasn't worried how big my arms were. I wasn't worried about the six pack that you've longed for for so many years. It really put into perspective just how beautiful this gift is of life and how important it is, but also how we get so hung up on things that really don't matter and I know it's easy to say and cliche to say, but it it really is when it's all said and done and you're lying in an icu or in the highlight of your day as is, is a bed bath after you've pooed yourself um it, it really puts so much into perspective and i think at that point i detached from the physical being and tried to transcend into more of a spiritual mindful place
4: so just go back to that phrase that you use there that was the day the ego died would you explore that a little bit more for us tell us what that means and on on what it did mean in that next stage for you.
1: Yeah, I I think we get a lot of our sense of self and how we perceive other people perceive us. And I think at that point, I purely identified with what an athlete was and in the Olympic motto, it's sit just at so faster, higher, stronger. So I had to be this six foot four powerful athlete. And then all of a sudden, you're lying in a hospital bed, you can't sit up, you're relying on people to feed you, wash you, dress you. And at that point... I just I detached completely from the ego. So all of a sudden, it wasn't about how other people perceive me. It wasn't that I sort of thought I was never going to be good enough until I won a world title or, or went to an Olympic Games. So all of a sudden, it was like, well, actually, it's okay just being me. It's actually okay leaning into the struggle, crying, being upset. It's the, I often like my emotions to the Scottish weather. There's a bundle of them within a minute. I go from ecstatically high to depressed, to joyful, happy... But I think when when I lay in that hospital bed and I looked around the ward at everyone fighting for their lives and, and just trying to take that other breath, I was like, wow! I've chased this thing, this medal or this sort of being of to try and maybe go back to my village. And everyone goes, wow! You're the gold medalist, and it, it really didn't matter uh, because in a hospital room where everyone's fighting for their for their life, it's you realise that actually just waking up in the morning. And, and breathing is, is one of the best gifts that will ever be given. So would
0: you mind sharing with us how you went from being on the Olympic rowing program to lying in that hospital bed? Yeah, so it was, it was probably a lifetime
1: in the making. My tumour was a very slow-growing tumour. Uh, I think it started to present symptoms around about the age of 17. And I'd spent my whole life in sports. What so, sort of stuff? Uh, like, so increased bladder function, not control over your bowel, Uh, sexual function i'm not too shy to say that anymore i used to be very embarrassed when i had the ego to talk about that but i think it's a very important indicator of when the body's not working right and uh, lots of fatigue pain and and every doctor i've seen just said you're you're doing too much sport you're doing too much training so i would go away from the doctor there was no google my mum had a huge big medical book and i used to try and flick through the pages to self-diagnose and and the more i read the more i thought i was going to die of a million different things so i decided to park the book uh, so i i spent 10 15 years in and out of hospitals and eventually one day after a rowing session the physio had done a, a light manipulation on my neck because rowers are genuinely suffering from bad backs and we thought it would be a bulging disc and uh he said, look, the easiest thing, we'll send you for some tests. The tests that led up to the scan were, were, were pretty horrific. Uh, lots of things getting, cameras getting stuck, places you don't want them to be put. And eventually he said, look, we'll just scan your neck. And they scanned my neck. And I guess in that day in 2010 is when my life really completely changed in many ways. I guess an old David died and a new David was born on that day. And I had a greater appreciation for life and, and what lay ahead.
4: So you came back from that to win gold in the 2012 London Games. What was the difference then of the David before that diagnosis and the one after it?
1: Because I'd set the goal and my dream was, was to make it to London, when that diagnosis came, my, my internal narrative was I don't have time for a tumour I'm trying to get ready for our games. And it was just this this annoying thing, like a stone in my shoe I had to get rid of. I didn't realize the stone in the shoe was going to revolve, cutting the front of my neck open, cutting into vertebrae, cutting into the spinal cord to remove this tumor, to then send me home. I then had a stroke at home and almost died and was rushed back into hospital. And, and that's when I woke up and I, I was looking at the the roof for almost a month. The, the goal was just to, to touch my nose.
0: So there was some paralysis at this point.
1: Yeah, there was like a, it's almost like a temporary paralysis. I think anytime they cut into the spinal cord, you're going to disrupt the cord. So I woke up, I couldn't really move and went from 100 kilos to 65 kilos. And I I was like to the doctors, you know, I need, to, I need to get out. I need to get training. London is a few years away. And I, I don't think I really... To be honest with you, I think for the last 13 years, I, I'm still in denial that there's actually anything wrong with me. I still attach, and even though I don't have the six-pack anymore and probably resemble a bit more of yeah, Jake's stomach, I still identify to that photo. Yeah. And, and I think I, I just sort of seen this thing, I need to get it out of the way. And, and six months, I think, after that surgery, I was back in a boat in 11 months, world champion. And then...
0: 12 months sitting on the start line of London. Mate, that's incredible. I mean, that absolutely is worth a round of applause. That is... uh, um, Obviously, for a long time now, you couldn't do anything to physically get closer to rowing. So what were you able to do to... It sounds ridiculous, really, but to still be a rower, even when you're lying... Paralyzed in that hospital bed.
1: I think for me, I I realized that was the initial realization of the power of the mind. So I'd done lots of sports psychology. I years and spent most of my childhood doing karate, so I understood imagery, visualization. So I was very disciplined. Uh, Those first sort of three, four months, every morning, I knew the rowing team were going on the water at seven a.m. I went on with my mind. I I couldn't go anywhere. Uh, There was no Netflix, so I I would just lie in in my hospital bed and visualize. 18 kilometers on the water every stroke I would smell the water feel the water and I I split my day up into different sports so I would do karate for an hour rowing skiing running all the all the sports I'd done to try and reconnect the nervous system the neural system and and I was the stubborn horrible I apologize to all the nurses I was that patient who when they came into the room I was already ready to go get me up I need to move and I, I believe 100% that the, the mind played such a key role in getting me from that hospital bed in, into the start line in London. Do you think without that visualisation, you wouldn't have competed to the level you did? I think it's hard to, to quantify that. I think yeah. it is quite subjective. But I, I do believe that it played an integral part of, of getting me. Because I, you have to believe in yourself. When the doctors are telling you, look, you're never going to walk again, sports never going to happen again this is who you are now. Is that the message from them? Yeah, pretty yeah. pretty much and so you have to believe in yourself. And another thing with sport is is that it hits a rugged environment and people are fighting to get to games and to your places. It doesn't stop and wait for you. So I very quickly realized that that boat had already gone. And and if I was going to be on it, I had had to do the work. And to be honest with you, at the time, I thought, I can never go through this again. This is absolutely horrendous. It's brutal. And I think the last stroke I ever took on a rowing boat was the one that crossed the line in London. And I said at that point, I'm never going near a boat again. I'm never going near a hospital again. I'm done with tumours, rehab, training and everything. And I was quite happy to close the book and have a normal life.
4: Go back to that phrase, I had to believe in myself because... When you sat in a doctor's surgery and they're telling you you're never going to walk again, you know, London is a, is a faraway dream. How do you believe in yourself? Because I'm sure there's lots of people here who have got their own challenges where that's useful. Would you tell us how you do it?
1: For me, it was having good people around me and having people who did believe. I also searched for vicarious experiences. I went and looked for people who had already done it and been there and thought, well, if they can do it, I'm, I'm no different. And I guess in many ways we, we aren't, right? I'm, I don't see myself as anyone special. I'm from a little village in the north of Scotland, had some opportunities, took them. I think we all have, I don't want to generalise in cliche, but I do think we are, We can really surprise ourselves. I've seen some people who thought they weren't strong enough and then they're given a diagnosis, they wake up in ICU and they, they can fight. I was asked two days ago who my inspiration was and obviously I should probably say Chris and other athletes, but inspiration can be found really close to home and i've found it on these wards seeing normal people doing incredible things and and when you're really tested just how much you can tune into it i think the one thing i always say to myself when it got hard is i always ask myself why i started and i was always very clear on my why i've done a lot of work with psychologists and and studied psychology and i realized if i had was very clear on my personal philosophy very clear on my purpose for each day, my purpose is a son, a brother, an athlete, a husband, whatever that may be, very clear on my purpose. And also always reminded myself, why, why did you start?
4: So what was your answer to that question? Why?
1: So when I went through surgery one and two, why I started is because I, I wanted to be a world champion and I, I wanted to be the best in the world at what I did. If you ask me that now, it's, it's a completely different answer. It's more about trying to make people see how important life is we come into this world on an inhale and we leave on an exhale two very very powerful defining breaths but every breath we take is defining i often challenge people to say did you wake up this morning put your feet on the floor and say that you were grateful for your feet were you grateful for the legs that took you here today and i know we're tuning into our breath but on an average day how aware are we of these breaths that we take and just how amazing they are how special they are and now when i feel like i want to give up i say to myself well david you you have a purpose of understanding what it's like to be on the edge of mortality and face your death but you also know the real beauty in humanity the real beauty in the world and i sort of feel that if i can share that then people might not have to go through what I've gone through to have the death of the ego and to wake up just to how amazing life can be.
0: So you crossed that finish line at 2012 and said, I'm done with rowing." That was brutal. And although you'd changed after your cancer diagnosis, you probably hadn't changed totally because you actually were unable to leave elite sport behind. You called Dave Brailsford, who runs British cycling at the time and still heavily involved and started training with people like Sir Chris Hoy got to an incredible standard. And then you get another phone call.
1: Yeah. So I thought I'd given that I was actually trying to avoid a real job more than anything else. But I I realized that the sport is is sport saved my life. It's a big part of who I am. And I sort of think when you're an athlete, you get so worried about retiring and transition. But the only thing that really changes is that you just don't have your national team top written on your back. But you're still an athlete and I think Nike point it beautifully that if you have a body and move you're you're an athlete so i think we're we're all athletes of life and but unfortunately i guess there was still a part of my ego popping through and thought you know what it'd be great to go to another games it would be great to to go and do something else and before i knew i was i was living down here cycling on the velodrome everything was going great but i was having regular scans and it was the opening ceremony of the commonwealth games and i remember i was called into to the hospital to get the results and I was delivered in a very matter of fact look the tumor is growing back you're going to require another surgery and i remember walking out sitting down watching the triathlon on the on the tv in the waiting room and and the tears ran down my eyes because i i often say to myself i couldn't go through all that again and now here i was faced again and i think uncertainty breeds anxiety When you don't know what's coming but i think sometimes ignorance is bliss and now i knew that i was about to have my neck cut open and it was going to go back to ground zero and and you know i I didn't think i had it in me but somewhere i found the the strength to to go in i didn't want to go in i was about to get on a plane and just run away and see how long i could live before it before I, i couldn't couldn't take any more breaths but it was inevitable. I had to walk through those doors and yeah, six months after that surgery, I was, I was back on a bike uh, riding for Britain again.
4: So your response of wanting to run away from that is something I can empathize with. So what stopped you doing that?
1: I think the reality of that if I did, I would, I would have died. And I think there, there, comes a point where I, I realized that i often looked at the scans and i often used to think is that somebody else's scan because i actually don't feel ill i've never really felt ill and i think i just had to sit down and be like well if, if i don't walk through those doors to, to go through for the surgery i'm going to die at some point and, and i love life and I, I don't want to check out yet I, I feel like i've got a lot to live for i love the sunrises and the sunsets and, and i feel that you know I, I had to go in and have that surgery and, and thankfully I did. They, they saved my life. And six months later, I forgot about it. And I was cycling again, thinking, well, that's it. I couldn't, do, I couldn't go through that again. Uh, I'll just continue on in sport and, and, and live my life. And what happened next? I was diagnosed again. So within a matter of months, I was back in a scan machine. And I sat again, went, did a training session here, got the train down to the hospital and then was told, look, the tumor is coming back. But you have some time. Uh, go and enjoy yourself so I, ca- I came back up booked a trip to mallorca went cycling but knew it was coming i still don't think i've ever really processed that yet and i remember coming back i packed up my flat in in nutsford i parked my car in the velodrome i put the key in the post and sent it to my dad and i said you look you, can you go and pick up my car i thought i was only going to be in hospital for a few weeks and i'd be back on a bike uh, a few months later and unfortunately, that surgery, uh, there was some form of complication in the surgery. And, and I woke up and I was paralyzed from the neck down. And six months later, I was pretty much still looking at the, the roof. And I've never moved again on the on the left side. So did you know when you went into that
0: surgery that there was a, a serious paralysis risk at that point?
1: Yeah, there, there's always the risk. There's the risk of dying in the surgery. There's also the risk of waking up as a quadriplegic, losing everything. From the, from the neck down. So when I realized that I'd only lost the left side, I was, I was actually very grateful. I was grateful that, that it could have been both sides. And, and there's, there's some incredible human beings living incredible lives as quadriplegics. I'm not going to say that it hits an athlete harder, but for me, I lived to move my body and to lose that ability. I'm, I'm not so sure I could live, so to only lose one side, I could still get back on a bike, I could still swim, I taught myself to ski again, and I could still, I guess, cling on to that identity as, as a sportsman.
2: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
4: This sounds very much like a grieving process that you would have had to go through. The death of the old you to embrace the new. Would you tell us a little bit about how you got through that process quickly and in such a productive way?
1: I still think I am going through it. and Maybe I have to come and see you for a session on the, on the sofa. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can ever accept the, the spinal cord injury because it wasn't my fault. There's days where I can't accept it and I'm grateful for life and, and I'm cycling my bike through the Alps and it's beautiful. And then there's other times where I... I fall over in the street i can't tie my shoelaces i need people to dry me and sometimes need people to dress me and i say you oh, know this is this is not what it was meant to be and and i cry i go through the grieving process and i think what i've realized is that that's okay i think to stay strong the whole time is is too tired and i think actually in strength is vulnerability and i think it is okay to cry choosing my moments carefully when i do cry uh, and just accepting the human for what it is and the emotions that that the human goes through, and i 've spent a lot of time doing therapy. I thought it was great sitting on sofas to, talking about all of it and trying to understand it and process it. but still, my number one coping strategy is is getting into nature, moving my body and, and being with my friends and, and i don 't think that ever changes, and I think that 's where i 've found so much gratitude and still being able to use my
0: my right leg and my right arm see so, but I think that 's an indication of the of actually how much you had changed because you know we started this conversation with you telling us that you were like a selfish athlete it was all about you you were number one which is often how it has to be when you're an elite performer and now you're simply grateful that only half your body has been paralysed have you read read the book man's search for meaning
3: yeah I think
1: it I think man's search for meaning and Eckhart Tolle the power now were probably the two most powerful books I've read somebody uh, gave it to me in hospital when i was first paralyzed and said look i think you're going to benefit massively from reading this and i think it helped me to try and somehow find meaning in the suffering and discover a purpose and i think one of the biggest things i took from it was the the space between a stimulus and response i think we've become very reactive and certainly when you're paralyzed it's very easy to start throwing plates at the wall and I, I tried to really work on the space between stimulus and response that I took from the book.
0: How do you do that?
1: A lot of mindfulness, a lot of meditation, a lot of breath work. And, and again, just, I guess, many ways I try to think back to the younger David and what the older David knows now and what he, as advice he would give him. But also I tried to look forward and say, you know what, if I, if I'm I do a lot of memento mori, which is not for everyone, the meditation of your own mortality. I think in my situation, I I have to be connected to that. And I think it makes me use every second of every day wisely. So I try to look forward and say, well, you know, if I'm lucky enough to live to 85, that's 480 months, 2,000 odd weeks. uh, How am I spending them and who am I spending them with? So time became a very precious thing to me. So I said, you know, every day I want to leave my house. I, I say a little thing before I leave every day. I say, be curious be compassionate and and be more someone with more courage and i, and I try to stick those three values wherever More I go.
0: courage more courage more courage <laughs> more courage right.
4: can you give us wow. we were talking backstage dave can you share that example you said of those three values in action that story when you went into the restaurant yeah. with the with the rude waiter yeah. so
1: i think life happens and we all become humans and that space between stimulus and response sometimes goes and and i turned up to a restaurant in london and i wanted to sit outside but the waiter didn't want to put me outside he wanted to put me inside so my best self didn't show up and the younger athlete showed up no i want to sit <laughs> outside and we had this bit of an argument so i sat down eventually get in my way and sat outside and and i thought that's not who you are i did a mental journal in my mind i thought that's not the human i want to be it's not who i hold myself accountable to the values i live so when he came back to the table i said look i'm very sorry for not being nice i don't think that's who i want to be and he said look don't don't worry about it my brother just got diagnosed with a brain tumor i was probably short with you and i was like oh wow i have a tumor too and the two of us started crying and he was italian so we were <laughs> hugging each other and and it all got quite emotional and um I had a great meal. He looked after me. But a year later, I went back to the same restaurant and he was very rude to me. And and this is life happening. And I said, how's your brother? And he stopped in all of the rush and all of the noise and he looked up and he went, "Ah, David, I have your seat for you. (laughs) Clear the restaurant, bring him in. And for me, it was a great example of compassion of being curious as well we're all going through stuff and i think it's easy to jump in the car in the morning go to work and get road rage and cut up people and life happens right and i think you know so many people it's a little bit cliche but we are all dealing with stuff i think if one in two people are impacted with cancer so it's inevitable you're going to come across somebody in your working day that is dealing with something something pretty big and that i think for me that was compassion. And awareness and curiosity and, and also having the courage to actually admit when I was being a bit of a I can't I don't want to swear but you
4: no, know. say the word dick because I want to say, <laughs> say <it>. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: when I was being a bit of a dick
4: <laughs> thank you for your work
0: uh, I want to say it again now
4: <laughs>
0: oh I want to touch on, on this idea of resilience, because I think that when people see you, they don't think that you're paralyzed because I think we have a kind of a linear view of paralysis. You're either paralyzed from the waist down as my grandfather was. And every single time we saw him, every single time his departing line was be grateful for your legs, um, which lives with me today. And then we think of paralysis from the neck down. You are paralyzed. People don't see that. Would you mind sharing with us? the physical impact on your body today that you are living with every single minute of every single day.
1: Yeah. So, so I'm paralyzed sort of from C 2 down, which is sort of here. So I've lost everything on, on the left arm, the left leg, that runs down the whole body. Uh, And on the right side, I I have no feeling. So I have to, where you cognitively, we didn't probably think about walking in here today. You might've been with the the audience were here. You might've been mindful of the grass under your feet, And coming, I I have to constantly think of every time I'm standing, where my weight is. And then that becomes extremely tiring. There's times where I I will just fall over the signals from the brain to the legs. I often think the brain is speaking maybe Chinese and the body speaking English and they don't quite communicate. And, and there's sometimes the signals just don't go, and and that can unfortunately in some instances mean that your bowel just opens in Tesco while you're waiting in the queue, which has happened, um, or you need the bathroom, or your legs just give way and fall over, and that makes navigating the world quite challenging, because if I arrive at an airport or in Tesco or wherever, people won't think, oh this guy's paralyzed from the neck down, I need to give him some way, and It was only yesterday on the tube in London that I was shoved over in in people trying to get on the train because they don't, they don't see it. And so it's given me a huge awareness of, of the, you know, people are struggling with things that we don't often see. Not every disability is is visible, but it's a, it's a daily, I guess it's a daily reminder of how lucky I am to be alive. There, there is no escaping it. And I think that's why sport is so important to me because when I jump on a bike, I I clip into the pedals. I I feel for those hours that I'm on the bike, I'm cancer free and I'm also paralysis free. It's just me, the bike, the mountains. And those moments in the day are are so beautiful for me. And, And I guess that in many ways is where I do all the mental reflection, the mental processing. But there is no escape of the paralysis. It's, you know, I have to go to the bathroom sometimes six times a night. So I gave up wearing and sleep tracking because it was, it was so shit that it basically told me that there's no point, just give up in life. So I had to take it off. Um, so then you, you, know, you have the bottle at the edge of the bed. Sometimes you miss the bottle and you end up peeing all over the room. So there's all these things that it's just take constant management and, it, and it's relentless. And to be honest with you, there's not a day goes by where I, I don't type into Google, has anyone found a cure for spinal cord injury
0: yet? So on those difficult days when you wake up in the morning and the first thought is why has this happened to me i used to compete for my country as an elite athlete what are the tools that you employ in those moments so i think for me it was it was dialing down on my values so again i
1: i believe we can train three things in life we can we can train our body which most of us do we train our craft which may be our sport our job our work and then it's our mind and i don't think we're often given the toolkit to to work with the mind we're given this sort of hardware and software is the mind and the brain and we're sent off into the world with with everything that's been inputted by our parents for the first seven years and then our teachers and that's usually well you're not good enough you're never going to get there uh, i guess in many ways that's why i i, I go back to the karate days and in the, in the dojos that i that i fought in and if if i was punched and knocked out it was like i had to get back up and go again and so I, I think for me, on the bad days, again, I connect to how fortunate and lucky I am to be alive. I also try to observe my thoughts and feelings and emotions as a watcher and with no judgment. So I try to watch them and, and accept them. Okay, well, it's okay to, to feel shit. I struggled a lot with survivor's guilt to start with because I was going to a spinal rehab center where people were quadriplegic. And I felt, why am I feeling bad? He's worse off than me. That really tortured me for years. And then eventually a therapist said to me, look, it's relative to you. Of course, he's going to have a bad day, but also you're also going through some shit. It's also okay to feel bad. And I think accepting those emotions was, was a big part. And then for me, it's, it's having a list of things, knowing my values, what I really value in life, being in nature, being on my bike, being with friends. I liken them to the legs of a chair. And they hold me up, and if you take them away, the chair falls down. When all three of them go i won't sit here and lie to you. There's days where I don't even leave my bed. I'm banging my head on a wall I'm crying. I'm just like, "I oh, you know what? I've had enough suffering now i'm I'm ready to shut my eyes and never open them again and then some way through all of that, my phone maybe goes, and someone sends me a message to say, "Hey, uh, you know, thinking of you, or you know, never give up, you inspire me or or I just look out and see a simple bird land on a tree and go, Wow, life life is so beautiful and there's people who it's taken too early and they don't have the choice. When I started radiotherapy in twenty nineteen, a lot of the people I started that journey with are no longer alive. And I thought, wow, I actually owe it to them to get myself out of this bed and to get living. And I think back to the David in the hospital when he's lying in ICU in pain with tubes coming out of him and think, Wow, that David would have given anything to go out. And 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 ride in the rain, or just to sit and have a coffee and read a book. So, and I think that's the thing with humans. Sometimes we always want more.
4: Can you tell us a bit about your relationship with your wife during this period as well? Because I can imagine from her point of view, she's watching you go through this suffering. How does she process it?
1: My family of, it's it's hard for the family you bring on the journey because I think when it's happening to you. You kind of have to find acceptance. You 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 deal with it. But when the family are watching on, I think it's it's really hard because they want to help. And then they inevitably say the wrong things, mostly. <laughs> uh, like, just be positive. <laughs> that usually <laughs> drives me mad. Or everything's going to be okay, <laughs> which also usually drives me mad. And then it's, it's going back to Viktor Frankl's stimulus-based response and me sitting in that space and being like, well, how do I get the people around me to come on the journey that they give me the best support. So it's a, a little bit of education, but I've, I've watched friends, loved ones you know, fall, fall apart. I, I had a army friend on the phone two weeks ago and he, was, he couldn't even speak to me. He was in tears. He broke down on the phone. And I was like, hey, it's happening to me, not you. <laughs> but I realized that everyone's different. And I think for me, it's, it's brought everyone so much closer. And I think that it's given me such a great appreciation of time that when I'm with you, I'm with you. So when I'm with you, I'm not on a phone, and i and, I, and this is I think what the, my loved ones have taken from this is that you know when we're together we're, we're, we're I'm with you, I'm listening to you, I'm hearing you, I'm not just sitting listening to reply or looking at my phone and doing a thousand things, and I think if you leave with anything today, leave with that you know we're addicted in the dopamine rush to our devices. when you're with your friends and loved ones, you know really like be with them, put this stuff away and, and I think that's probably if I can leave anything with my family, that's been the biggest lesson from all of this. So it's, it's been hard for them. And I think it always will be because my tumor is never, it's, well, I say never going to go away. It's, it's something I live with for, for every, every living breath
0: I take. So it's something that I have to navigate with, with my loved ones. Picking up on the conversation you had with your, your friend who's in the military, who was in tears, and you were having to say to him on the phone, hold on, I'm the one living this life, you know? Um, often it can be so hard for other people because they don't have any control over over this, whereas you at least have some element of how you react to what's going on. And I guess that conversation revolved around your most recent diagnosis. Would you mind sharing with us where this story is at at the moment? So, so, I, so I had fought
1: for radio life, radiotherapy my whole, for the last 13 years, and eventually I got radiotherapy in 2019. And from every scan for the last four, four or five years have been clear. So the tumor had sort of just died and it was there. And I, and I was sort of, I guess, falling back into life and trying to chase goals and 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 just living. And then there was a little scan cropped up. It was done in May. And I, and I sat in oncology a few weeks ago and they, they said, look, there's a, there's a little nodule growing. I hate that word. As soon as I heard that word, I was like, oh my God. Um, at that point, I got on a plane and went to Pakistan and went and hid in the Himalayas for 10 days. But I realized that hiding that is not going to solve the problem. I, I have to come back and face this. And then I was like, how do I tell people? Like, this is the fifth time. I, I don't really know. They've already done radiotherapy. I was like, oh man, how do I even navigate this? And I put a little bit of a cryptic message out on, on social media. And the people who had been on the journey the whole time picked up the phone right away and went, what's up? and my army friend was one of them and he burst into tears and and then he cried, and then he sort of phoned someone else and said look you need to go and see dave so the next day someone came and visited me and said look i'm i'm here to dan couldn't speak to you but i'm here and and then I, again for me I, I didn't want to say anything to anyone because i was like i you know, just kind of suffer in silence and then i was like no I'm, I'm gonna need my friends more than probably ever and to be honest with you I, I could probably just start crying now it's like i don't want to i don't want to die and um. And it's, it's, yeah, it's scary. And uh, to deal with it and know that it's going to happen again, there has to be a level of acceptance of mortality within it all. And just to make peace with that. I've not, I'm the only Scotsman that doesn't drink alcohol, but I have a beautiful 18-year-old bottle of Glenfiddich in my house in Scotland. And I'm actually en route to get that bottle of whiskey now <laughs> to, to go and, and sit with my friends. Because I realize that in many ways it's a gift. Because sometimes we don't really get to sit and be with our friends and, and maybe say goodbyes and stuff. And, and for this, I'm going to go and knock on some doors and, and sit and open this bottle of whiskey and, and, and sit and just share some stories. Because I realize at the end, all we have is memories. Memories are made from experiences. And we don't really have experiences if we don't learn to savor the moment. And savoring the moment, for me, is about being where your feet are and being in the present moment. And I think that's how I'm dealing with the current situation.
4: So, how long did the doctor say that your life expectancy? Was? They
1: won't give me a number on that. I f- did ask that question. I thought it was an appropriate question to ask. Uh, what can they do? They can do surgery again. So, that would be surgery number seven. They said radiotherapy would maybe buy me six months. But, uh, you know, I went away and I think now that I don't have my mum's medical book to look for, I do have Google. I typed it straight in Google and the answers came up right away. There's a new. Things move in the medical world so fast. There's a new treatment in Germany called carbon ion therapy. So I'm going to head to Germany very soon to have discussions with doctors there to be like, you know, is this something that they they think would work? And you know, we have eighteen thousand six hundred seconds in a day. If that's right, if my math is right, I just want to live all of those seconds. And I'm very clear in my values and my philosophy for life. And if I can just get the most out of them, and I've wrestled with the question right now: Would I rather live 50 years but live every day or live to 100 and have not lived any days and i don't know if i'm scared of death i am scared of death but i'm also scared of not living so for me at the moment it's just like how do i get the most out of life who do i spend time with how can i influence people's life to to go out smash it enjoy every one of those seconds every one of those breaths and and just you know can i say balls grab life by the balls (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I made the most of it and you know and be with friends and I know that Johnny McAvoy has been on you guys are friends Johnny McAvoy and, and I, 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 he's someone who reminds me of this daily about making the most of life and for me he's someone that I always look at and think well here's a guy who's very clear in his values and, and lives them every day and I think as long as I'm doing that the time I have left here is, is
0: irrelevant as long as I'm living by those values that has been the most inspiring conversation we ever could have had um thank you so much for sitting with us here at the happy place festival damien jake i think the standing ovation that david got at the end of that conversation at the happy place festival um says all that needs to be said almost doesn't it
4: Yeah, I think even when he was talking and we were looking around the audience, there was people in tears, there was people visibly moved by his message because he is the perfect messenger to tell us about how do we live even when we're facing death.
0: And that's really what this is about. This is about someone who knows that unless he finds some alternative treatment, as he explained to us, his, his life is severely limited. And all we can do... Right. In many ways, like for people to listen to that and think, oh, I feel, I feel for him, like, you know, he has my sympathy, that's useless to him. And it's actually useless for us as well. This is about us as listeners to this podcast who have our health and who, you know, as far as we're aware, have time to realize the value of what we've got yeah. and not throw this away because none of us want to be woken up to what life really is by having a diagnosis like David's had. We need to realize that right now, the beauty in those little things that he spoke about. And if, if someone with a terminal diagnosis can find the happiness, then it should be there for all of
4: us. Definitely. And I think that was a big reason why David's made himself so vulnerable at such a like, heartbreaking time of his life, to come and share this story and to share the lessons. It isn't because he wants your sympathy, it's because he wants you to understand all of us that life is there for living. When he talks about the simple things of when you're with somebody, don't be on your phone, connect with them. They appreciate the joy of going out for a bike ride and the, just seeing the countryside around you, the waiter in the restaurant, just try and connect rather than dismiss him as being rude. These are all opportunities for us to really embrace the full spectrum of emotions that life has available and on offer to all of us.
0: And you and I are recording this little conversation after we've had the the, the chat with David, because it was done on stage and we had to leave the stage. And actually, as we left the stage, I had a quick chat with him. And he said, you know what, I, I really don't want people to think that um, they've got loads of time and I haven't. He said, you know, we were talking about the fact that actually none of us have very much time, even if he lives, let's say, another six months and maybe I live another 30 years, right? By the time I get to the end of those 30 years, I will be able to go, wow, that 30 years went by in the blink of an eye, in the same way that His six months would go by in the blink of an eye. I sometimes think we trick ourselves into thinking, well, I have so much time. But you and I are in our 40s, right? How long ago were we in our 20s? The blink of an eye. How long ago were we turning 10? Remember getting your 10th birthday card? Blink of an eye. You'll now be in your late 70s in the same blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to say that because I think people people go, well, I've got at least another 50 years left, so I'll start to enjoy it towards the end. But for now, I've got jobs and mortgages. And, getting, and of course, I know all that stuff is there, but it goes by quick. Yeah.
4: And there's a palliative care nurse called Bronnie Ware that's written a really beautiful book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying that went and interviewed patients that were facing similar terminal diagnosis. The regrets of the day were all around things like I wish I'd spent more time with the people I loved. I wish I hadn't have stressed about things that weren't worth investing that time in. I I wish I'd have made the time to actually seek happiness. There was nothing in there about that would cost us money. It just cost us a little bit of focus and a little bit of our time. And I think that's the key message that I'd encourage anyone to take away from David. I, I know I certainly have. Yeah.
0: And of course, huge thanks to David for um, joining us on High Performance, sharing so much with us, and we wish him the very best with his journey as he looks to find a treatment to um, extend his life. Uh, Damien, thank you.
4: Thank you, Jake. It was a privilege, this one.
0: Absolutely. Thanks a lot, David. You're a true inspiration, um, and your messages, I know, will have helped so many people who've just listened to this podcast. Thank you, mate. So there we go. Um... If you could do one favour for me and the High Performance team, it would be to share this episode with somebody. I think that we all need a reminder sometimes of actually what we've got rather than what we haven't got. I don't mind how you do it, but I would love this episode to be heard by as many people as possible. I believe that David deserves that. And I hope that whatever is going on in your life, um, this episode gives you some energy. It gives you some perspective as well. Um, And David, thank you so much once again for giving up your time. Don't forget, you can also watch this conversation with David on YouTube. And if you can hit subscribe, that's really helpful for us. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you again soon for another episode of the High Performance Podcast.